Hello and welcome to the Health Query Podcast, where we cover the full spectrum of well-being through conversations with everyone from doctors to dominatrixes, we delve into the many realms of mental, physical, sexual, emotional, and spiritual health. Health Query is dedicated to challenging boundaries, shattering taboos, and embracing queerness as we bring you a diverse range of lesser covered health subjects and their intersectionalities. My name is Allison Schulte, and I have been integrating body, mind, sex, and spirit for over 25 years in medical, academic, nonprofit, kink, and community spaces. Today, Dr. Alexandra Hill joins me to discuss inclusive and gender-affirming health care for trans and non-binary or NB folks. It is a much-needed discussion since the state of health care for trans and NB is pretty dire these days, um, especially when you consider the draconian laws being passed in conservative states that are denying these people access to not only affirming, but also vital and critical care. I asked her to share some practical tips around issues like dyspareunia or genital pain around sex and resources for both healthcare professionals and trans or NB folks. And my talk with Alex goes beyond these unique sexual health care needs. We also talk about chest binding and even practical guidance. Healthcare professionals can start following right away to provide care that is person-centered. So if you are a healthcare professional, I'm especially asking you to share this episode with your colleagues in the hopes that we can improve the status quo. I hope you enjoy the episode and I'll catch you on the other side. Nice to finally meet you. I found you on YouTube, actually, because I'm trying to build our YouTube channel for my nonprofit. You had a physical therapy video on chest binding, and that's like one of the um, projects we have is we're trying to do a series called Unbind and Unwind. And it's it's just, I don't think people are aware enough that chest binding like affects your pelvic floor. So I was so stoked to see your content and how inclusive it was. And then I started following your Instagram and I reached out to you. So that's how I found you in case you're wondering. I love that. That's awesome. <laughs> your your content is reaching people. So that's good. It's super good. It's always, that's always the question, right? It's like, am I just shouting into the void to anybody? So anytime someone says they found me, especially on YouTube, because I just started that this year. Um, you know, anything like that is very encouraging. So that's awesome. And so my first question is just, I wanted to talk about how you got interested in oncology, pelvic health and physical therapy, and why you made those the focuses of your practice. And then the other question I love to ask physical therapists, especially because it's a doctorate program, I love to find out how many hours of pelvic health education you had in your program if anything, because I'm always really stunned to know that. So some really great questions. I get asked all the time, like, how the hell did you end up in pelvic health and oncology? Like, they're just such specific niches to get into within physical therapy. Like, how did you get into it? So a little bit of background about myself is I had a hip injury when I was in uh, high school. And it kind of went misdiagnosed, undiagnosed for three years. I had been to multiple specialists. I had a ton of imaging. I'd had injection. I mean, everything done and nothing was helping. I had one orthopedic surgeon tell my parents that he thought that it was a psych issue and it was in my head or I was making it up. It was very frustrating and got to the point where I was in college. I couldn't get to my classes comfortably. I couldn't sit comfortably because I was just in pain all the time. And so I went to a surgeon um when i my parents moved down to florida just at the point of i'm just desperate like let's just do exploratory surgery and see what's going on and he was the first one to really truly listen to me and then recreate the symptoms that i was having the physical therapists and assistants that are out there will kind of chuckle at this all it was was a labral tear for three years it went misdiagnosed and all he did was just scour recreated the clicking 
did an arthrogram MRI and they were able to see the tear and then the three years of scar tissue that had built up because I was just trying to do things. And so, so that's when I've gotten, you know, had my experiences in physical therapy as well. Um, when I started out in college, I was pre-med, but the more that I shadowed with physicians, I just felt like my personality and what I valued about healthcare really aligned a lot more with physical therapy in terms of being able to spend time with people, you build rapport with them, you move a lot more, you have, uh, I think, a little more fun with them. And so that was, that's what got me into physical therapy. And then I hadn't even heard of pelvic health or oncology rehab before starting. And to the second part of your question, we had maybe a half day content on each pelvic health and oncology. And I think, and this was, I graduated nine years ago, so it's almost a decade, which is just weird to think about being out that long. But, you know, at the time it, it was a little bit about treatment, but it was, it was just like, okay, anybody with history of cancer, it's a red flag or you're only screening for red flags for cancer. It wasn't like, how do you work with cancer survivors, people going through treatment? And then with pelvic health, it was kind of the same thing. We learned about the anatomy, more like SI joint dysfunction, but we didn't really dive into like, but what does a treatment look like? And so with one of my first rotations was an orthopedic rotation and my CI was out for a day and this was like the best day ever. We, that totally changed the course of my practice and what I wanted to do was because then I shadowed with a pelvic health therapist. I just, I just want to know what do they do behind the doors? And so I shadowed with them and the, the pelvic PTs that I shadowed did both pelvic health and oncology. And so kind of full circle, seeing these people and, and patients who had been dealing with years or decades of pelvic pain or incontinence or sexual dysfunction, and we're told, you know, it's in your head, have a glass of wine. This is normal as you get older but it was a muscle issue and it just took somebody to listen to them, get their hands on them and test them. And that, you mean, the results that you would see within even a visit or two were huge. And so for me, like it really hit home with my own experiences. And also just, I just thought that they were fascinating. These were the two topics that I just wanted to read more about outside of class. So I knew that I wanted to get into it. Yeah, it's a deep dive. I like that about it too. There's so much learning and so many areas you can specialize in. And I agree, there's so much medical gaslighting when it comes to pelvic health. Like I've had patients more than once be like, well, my doctor said peeing your pants is just the price you pay for having a baby. And then that's it. Yeah. <laughs> it's awful. And then, you know, serving the LGBTQIA plus community is like another layer of specializing. And then I feel they're so excluded from conversations around pelvic health um, so frequently. I, th I think the general public and even a lot of even people in medical spaces think that pelvic health is only relates to childbirth and cisgender female problems. I was hoping you could talk about some of the common misconceptions that LGBT patients have and um, when it comes to their own pelvic health and oncology and how, how you address these. Yeah. So like you said, um, I mean, even if we go at an even kind of higher level and just look at the research, the majority of research is either on cisgender folks or it doesn't even ask their gender or dive into their sexual orientation or anything like that. So I think that's really when we look overarching, that's a lot of the issue is they're just, they haven't been included. And so then when you're trying to learn things online or learn things from your medical provider, they may not be applicable to you. And so you're not getting all the information that you truly need. Knowledge is power, but you don't know what you don't know. And so when people are educating you based purely on cisgender or cishet norms or white norms, which again, the majority of research historically have been cishet white populations, where we have a huge gap in knowledge and how to approach different conditions, what is the best treatment. Um, so I think that is 
really a, a huge disservice in the research and the healthcare and the medical field that then trickles down and impacts anybody in this community. When that when the 2015 US transgender survey came out, you know, the results of that I think were very telling when we looked at the healthcare portion of it. I think it was a third of people in the year prior who had gone to a healthcare provider experienced some type of negative experience, whether it was harassment, refusal for treatment. I'm in Florida, if that tells you anything about the current climate of things compared to 2015. And then, you know, I think it was like 22% delayed their care of seeing a provider because they were afraid of what type of experience they would have. And so, you know, not being able to talk about their concerns openly or delaying their care a lot of times what we see, especially in the oncology space, is people are getting diagnosed with a later stage cancer that typically then will involve much more aggressive types of treatment. And then when we look at then the side effects of those treatments, those are going to thus just be compounded because they're having much more aggressive treatment, whether that be additional chemotherapy, whether that be a more extensive surgery those things and the side effects of those treatments last well beyond the immediate post-treatment phase. Those effects can last lifelong. And so I think the biggest thing is just people being advocates for themselves and finding providers. And that's why I'm so thankful for this podcast and for the work that you and others do with trying to kind of elevate providers who are kind of safe providers, if you will, and welcoming providers inclusive, but also who have that training to work with people. So for example, some of the things that I've talked with people on and trained other providers on is when you're doing a sexual health history, obviously check your own biases on what sex looks like to you, first of all, but also being mindful of what your own biases and or preconceptions are of somebody in their sexual practices or their partners. And so an example would be if I'm working with somebody who's a prostate cancer survivor, and we're talking about return to sexual function, I need to know if they're a penis owner, okay, are you going to be participating in vaginal penetration, in anal penetration, anal uh, receptive sexual activity? So because the erection tissue needs to be harder for anal penetration compared with vaginal. If you're not asking your patients these types of questions, they're not getting that information. And so I think it, it's a lot on the providers to be mindful of the types of questions that they're asking their patients as well. I don't know if I totally answered your question. No, everything you're saying is golden. So it doesn't, it doesn't have to stick to a script. And while you were talking, I think I think so much about trans masculine folks and like pap smears and like the avoidance of that. To go to the women's clinic. How many clinics are still called women's clinic, but you don't identify as a woman? It just, it's, it's frustrating and it's, it's scary if you don't identify with that. Yeah. And I believe if you're, if you've had your like ID changed, like you've officially changed your name and your gender on your ID, that can also create barriers and access to women's health care. That's absolutely true. And then I can't imagine being in Florida. It's like, it's kind of, it's just like a double issue because it's like already pelvic health issues are taboo. And a lot of just cis hetero people are really uncomfortable talking about their sex or there's so much shame and stigma around sexual dysfunction or pelvic health conditions. And then you add to that the challenges you started off with speaking about, like the, the way people are treated and healthcare if they're not presenting cis hetero heteronormative lifestyles. One of the things I keep meaning to do, but we don't, <laughs> there's so much to do, but um, with pelvic sanctuary, we need money so we can hire more help. It's, it's really just me doing everything and I have so many ideas, but like, I mean, one thing I'd love to have on our website is just like a downloadable PDF that has inclusive language, not only about gender, but like relationship status, not just married single. And more boxes to tick for what kinds of sex you're engaging in and even like for kink stuff, you know, like there's, you're gonna, there's, there's like, 
there's body mechanic issues to consider if someone's wearing a strap on, you know? Yep, absolutely. That's why I always tell people when I'm asking questions, I, and I ask about any type of pain with sexual activity, I say any unwanted pain with sexual activity because of different sexual patterns that people are engaged in. And I do think that, you know, with pelvic therapists, I think in general, we're a little bit more progressive in terms of the types of questions we're asking in, in forms and that kind of thing. But I still feel like, especially in a healthcare setting, so I'm in a hospital-based clinic, it's still standardized. So you're still having to ask a lot of additional questions on top of kind of those standardized EMR, electronic medical record, you know, registration forms and that kind of thing. So yeah, patient education, that's a really fun topic. Like what role does patient education play in your practice? And how do you help patients better understand and take charge of their symptoms? I know that's a broad question. No, I love that question. So I'm really passionate about patient education, because I think it's something that especially as healthcare providers, it's just like a box that we check, like, okay, yes, I educated the patient, whereas this should truly be its own intervention and modality that we utilize with patients. You'll hear me say a lot, knowledge is power. Like, I truly believe that. And if we're not providing education in the best way to that patient, we're doing them a disservice. You can't just use the same blanket handout and give that to every single patient. I don't think I have a single blanket handout that I give every patient. I always modify it based on the language that we use or different cues, that kind of thing. So especially um, if I'm educating on pelvic health topics or it's a pelvic health session, um, I'll always ask people, is it okay that I use anatomical terms for um, your genitals or for your anatomy? Or do you prefer different terms or what do you call your, your parts kind of thing? Um, Because a lot of people, especially with gender dysphoria, may not want to use those terms um, and prefer something else. And so I always ask that from the get go, as I kind of bring up my pelvic model and start to go through things um, and then make sure that in my education, I utilize those same terms that they identify with or that they prefer to use. Um, So I think that's probably one of the most important things is just not giving, you know, general education, make sure it's tailored for the patient. Um, is going to be one of the most powerful things that you can do and making sure that it's actionable. So again, not giving a ton of information, but making sure that you're giving them actionable, easy to implement strategies from your education so that they can implement it on their own to be able to start working on their symptoms better. What you said is really important. I did the APTA gender affirming care course, which I was really with Sandy Gallagher. Yes. Love that course. That was such a good course. I I did it before I even graduated PTA school. I saw it and I was like, I have to take this class. And I actually opened a GoFundMe to get my friends and supporters to help me pay for it. I love that. So, and uh, yeah, they talked about that. That was like one I really heavily noted and like also like language mirroring. So you can get little cues. If you're listening to your patient, they might already just automatically say what they call their parts or instead of saying breasts, saying like, let's move this tissue over or. Exactly. Yeah. So like what other advice do you have for physical therapists who want to better support their queer patients? And especially in dealing with oncology and pelvic health, but also in general physical therapy or even for, um, you know, other medical professionals that are listening. Because I, I do feel like there's a big gap between communication with, with the doctors and the PTs. Um, you know, I'm a PTA, so I, I worked with Dr. Julie Guthrie for my first job. She's in Los Angeles. Yeah, she was, it was amazing working for her. And I learned, you know, I went in like very naive about how things work. And one of the things that struck me was just some of the lack of general knowledge that some of the doctors that were doing the referrals had. So that's, that's sort of a second part of the question. But just I wanted to make open it up to be like general advice, whether it's towards PTs who want to be more inclusive or other medical professionals. Yeah. So And I think that a lot of people don't realize like how many resources there are out there, but also 
how much better we can each do to show up for our patients. It's easy to say, oh, I'm an inclusive provider. Like, I don't care what your gender is. I don't care what your sexual orientation is. I don't care, you know, just come in and, you know, we're always welcoming. But that's still, you can take it still a step further with, like you mentioned before, having appropriate and comprehensive registration forms, um, making your space a, a, a inclusive clinical space. So having those small cues. So for my... Um, work, we have, you know, we have badges and I have a small progressive pride pin that I keep on my badge just as a little signal. So going that extra step um, to really show up for your patients, but also again, if you're making your, or advertising that your clinical space is a safe space or an inclusive space, you need to also be able to back that up with cultural training, with continuing education. Um, the, uh, PT Proud, I think they might have changed their name, uh, but it's a component within APTA. They have a fantastic handbook resource for PTs, PTAs. I've recommended it for an, for an OT friend as well. Um, with and it includes things like language, like considerations for um, what you're saying, or considerations for what LGBTQ plus folks are going through that maybe you didn't consider as a therapist. Um, so there's a lot of different resources that are out there. It's just a matter of really doing a self-check, a self-assessment, just like we would for any of our other skills of like, okay, how am I doing with my shoulders lately? Maybe I need to brush up on, you know, additional techniques to help frozen shoulder or something like, okay, this is a component of that care because again, there's so much research that's out there on the benefits of a strong therapeutic alliance between yourself and your patient. If you're not going that extra step to get that alliance truly, then again, you're you're missing the mark with a lot of people and doing a disservice. So I think to, you know, short answer is do a self-check, see where maybe you can utilize some other resources and go after that to show up for your patients. That is such a good answer. I've definitely seen that like mindset of just like, well, I don't care who, if you're gay or who you have sex with, like I'll still serve you. And it's like, no, like not being a bigot, like not denying people's services completely isn't necessarily being, you know, an inclusive space, especially when you're handling their bodies. Like Exactly. Exactly. And, and for me, so I'm cisgender, I'm heterosexual, I'm biracial. And so for me, that's like somebody saying like, oh, I'm colorblind. Like, I don't care. I'm like, okay, but you need to still appreciate these differences, right? And see where other people are coming from. Um, you know, I, I gave a talk last year on, on education for oncology patients. And one of the things was essentially like, Check what your health brochures actually look like and the models that are included. A lot of stock images are what we've talked about this whole time, you know, cisgender, white, thin, able-bodied people. If you have that in all of your brochures, is that really serving your patients if they're not able to truly identify with the education that you keep giving to them? Yeah, yeah. I get really frustrated with how much, you know, when you just do a search on pelvic health PT, how focused it is on like skinny, like Pilates body, like white ladies. And then it's like, and it's all pink and yes girly and i'm like you know i think even even that's like one of the only spaces where i'm like what about the cis men I, exactly they're not gonna go there that, and then you think there's already a scarcity of people who do what we do and then you add to that that they're only serving or marketing towards a certain population it's like really sad and then also like with people of color, it's like prostate cancer is more prevalent in black men. And you should be aware that as of that as a, you know, pelvic health care provider, just making sure that doesn't slip through the cracks, those screenings. But anyways, yeah. Oh, yeah. Let's talk about you also offer specialized courses for rehab providers. Could you talk more about those? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so kind of like what we've been talking about, there's just been such a gap in a lot of knowledge in these specific areas. And so I've just been over the years getting frustrated with, you know, not having courses that are inclusive in terms of like, okay, what does a black vulva look like? Um, you know, this, 
dermatological conditions look different on darker skin than they do on lighter skin or on pinker skin. Um, But all of the pictures were of light skin, um, which was just frustrating because then when you go into the clinic, you're not seeing typically all the same shade of skin. Um, And so I really wanted to close the gap on um, pelvic health and oncology talking about social determinants of health, including um, specific populations like in uh, the cancer population, adolescent and young adult uh, patients. These are people who are diagnosed between 15 and 39 with cancer, um, but they're oftentimes in the research lumped with either pediatrics or with adults instead of having their own specific um, kind of group. Um, And then including LGBTQ plus considerations. Um, and so that's kind of what prompted me to create these courses um, that are geared towards rehab providers and trying to bridge that gap. So in my mind, as a pelvic health therapist, I think that every provider, regardless of what setting you're in, you should be addressing in some form or fashion pelvic health besides just screening it for red flags. So my first course is for oncology rehab providers and basically going through what are different pelvic conditions that are common among cancer survivors? Um, what kind of questions should you screen for? What are some simple interventions that you can do that are not internal work? Um, and then when do you know to refer to a pelvic therapist? Um, I'm doing one right now that's going through the CEU approval process that's on navigating sexual dysfunction for cancer survivors. Because again, this is something that's just, you don't, you don't get, you're having to Google everything and kind of piece things together. And so I I just want to bring all of that forward and have different case examples of transgender folks, of Hispanic folks, of non-binary folks, instead of just these always kind of the same type of case studies and examples and pictures. And um, kind of what I think you had mentioned earlier is it's hard to also find stock photos um, and medical photos of various skin tones and different, you know, physical abilities. And so the content took me a while to create, but also honestly, a large part of it was finding pictures that were good to use in these courses because it's just hard to find diverse and inclusive images, which is really frustrating, but. Yeah. I mean, I was just like, did you have to ask any friends? That's probably what I would do, but I know a lot of sex workers. So (laughs) (laughs) I actually considered it. (laughs) (laughs) Luckily, um, from the pelvic images, especially um, pelvic guru, uh, if you're a member with them, they have a lot of images and they have dark skin, medium skin, light skin. So that was a really beneficial membership to to join into, if only for, not just for that, but you know, education stuff. But yeah, yeah. So they've got some good images. Um, I've had to like create my own on Canva before, um, or edit them to have different skin tones. So it's, but again, like you shouldn't have to search and look that hard to find this type of diversity in stock images, you know. And that goes for you know everything and anything. <laughs> and then like this new, like this new AI, um, I can't remember what is it called? I'm blanking. The one that generates art images, it counts. Uh, I, Cause I had ideas. I'm like, oh, I could produce some great original content for the nonprofit through here, but it counts even like anatomical stuff. Like a uterus is considered like sexually explicit. So you can't, you can't do any anatomy stuff on there. So, cause I was like, this is great. I can do a bunch of education stuff. It's going to be fast. And it's like, everything's banned pretty much. It's really frustrating too. And I'm not, I'm not sure if you've seen this on with your own page as well, like certain hashtags or images or words that you say. So like using the word vagina or penis or uterus. I mean, I've had posts that have been taken down before because of nudity. I say that in quotes for the podcast, um, where I'm literally going through the anatomy on a pelvic model and it gets flagged as nudity or as being inappropriate. And it's like with everything else that you see on here, how is talking about anatomy and knowing your body 
how is this getting taken down? I know. My my partner, Dr. Q, just had he he specializes in gay gay men's health. And um, yeah, he got he said erectile dysfunction in one of his posts and it got pulled. I don't know what we're supposed to do because I'm 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 really concerned about it as like the nonprofit grows and we're built building a YouTube channel. And I've heard my understanding is YouTube is one of the more conservative in terms of so you have to be like really, really careful there. <laughs> I learned that the hard way. So basically like anything and it's and it's tricky because in their guidelines, and this is again like other social media channels, like if it's educational, if it's health related, then it's quote okay. But at the same time, if there's anything that mentions sex, especially, or like shows the vaginal anatomy or penile anatomy, you have to actually mark it as 18 plus only. So people actually have to log in and be over 18 to be able to access the content. But again, like I did a video on um, how to insert a tampon. People are inserting tampons before 18 years old. Right. But it got pulled because I was showing in a vulvar model how to insert it, but it got pulled. And it's like, but how are, how are people supposed to learn if we're not teaching it in schools? That's a whole other podcast topic. But also if they're not able to learn it online, they're having to go to Reddit, you know, it's just, it's. And who, who needs to learn how to insert a tampon is like a young um, cis woman who's parents aren't talking to them about this stuff who's not someone who doesn't have access to the support and education and they can't go to, they can't get it from school and if you can't get it at home that's it's people under 18 like often exactly and then we're getting them you know under 18 but usually later on and you know oh i haven't been able to insert a tampon or a menstrual cup or get a pelvic exam or have any type of penetration you know for 10 years because I was too embarrassed to talk about it or my parents didn't talk to me or, you know, they just thought they had to live with it when if they were educated and were able to have these types of resources and they would recognize like, oh, this is, you know, not, maybe not normal, but there's something you can do about it. There's so much more help that is available for people than than they realize. So you got me kind of thinking about dyspareunia and vaginismus. So you probably... Why don't you tell, because we're allowed to say whatever we want here. Do you want to, do you have any information on those conditions that you'd like to share? Because I feel like I can't share them on Instagram or YouTube. <laughs> so It's challenging. Or you have to use like cute little emojis to like show what a penis is. Or uh, the one that I really dislike is people that use the cat emoji for the vulva. Like I just... <laughs> <laughs> It's just, people get creative. Um, but yeah, so uh, dyspareunia is pain uh, with vaginal penetration or vaginal intercourse, whereas anodyspareunia is pain with anal penetration. Um, and so that can be from a wide variety of different types of medical conditions, or if you're fearful that something may hurt, then that can, as we talked about before, kind of increase that tone of the pelvic floor muscles make it harder for you to relax and contribute to some of that pain. Um, that's um, in contrast to vaginismus, which is typically kind of the lower third of the vagina kind of um, tightens or spasms, or you have difficulty, you can't achieve vaginal penetration of any type. Um, I've worked with people in the past where they couldn't even tolerate a Q-tip. Um, that was something that that was that small. But with working with therapists, with, you know, we do things like down training the nervous system, kind of calming down that nervous system, retraining their thinking about their condition and about their anatomy. Um, you know, a lot of times there's a lot of body shame that is associated with it. They've maybe grown up in a very strict household or a very religious household or, um, you know, have an upbringing that kind of can potentially predispose them. There's been some small research studies that have looked at that too. Um, but basically reframing how they're thinking about it, doing stretches, dilators are really helpful, which are medical devices to basically help to retrain the muscles that something being inserted is okay, that stretch is okay, 
that movement in and out is okay. Um, so it can take a while for some people, um, but just recognizing again that if there is any type of pain associated with sexual activity, um, that there is help that's available and it doesn't even have to be penetrative activity. Um, you know, with clitoral stimulation, sometimes that can be painful. Sometimes just arousal can be painful, um, whether that's pain at the penis, pain at the scrotum, perineum, um, or kind of the area called the taint, uh, that can be a place of pain too. So just recognizing that any unwanted pain you don't have to deal with with sexual activity. Awesome. Do you have any other topics you'd want to give a quick, quick uh, tutorial on? that you feel like you can't do on YouTube? <laughs> I didn't mean to put you on the spot that wasn't Yeah, there. it's you can put it on YouTube. It's just a matter of putting it as 18 plus is what I've learned. <laughs> uh, <okay. laughs> I'd like to do some more um, kind of gender affirming care videos. I have the chest binding one and then the dilators, but I'd like to do more, but. <laughs> yeah, and what do you, I mean, I love learning from other PTs or PTAs. So what are your big tips with chest binding? I know for me, I'm, I'm always thinking about lateral breathing yeah. and um, that's probably the biggest one and th building thoracic spines, you know, working mm -hmm. on the thoracic spine and um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things, but I'd love to hear, uh, hear what, what your recommendations are for people who chest bind. Yeah. Um, so for me, the first thing is always just asking people like, why do you bind? How long do you bind for? Do you bind every day? Um, is it safe for you to not wear a binder, for example, when you go to sleep, like depending what their living situation is? So I always want to know before I educate them, like, what are they actually doing? What's realistic for them? What's safe for them to do? Um, and so then from there, some general recommendations are uh, you know, ideally not wearing the binder for more than eight hours a day. If you're able to take it off, I'll usually recommend like if you're able to be in a private bathroom or a private stall, like loosen it or take it off. Do like you were saying, those big lateral breaths, do some uh, spinal range of motion exercises. So I'll try to show ones that are you could easily do in a stall where you don't need a lot of like big open space or, you know, the floor to lay on and do these big movements. Um, and then checking your skin regularly. Um, a lot of times there can be some skin breakdown or some infection or kind of fungal infection if there's um, if they're binding a lot. Ideally, not wearing a binder with exercise, as we know with exercise, especially higher level um, uh, exercise, you should be breathing more, your ribs should be expanding more, your lungs should be expanding more. If you're not, that can cause a lot of issues with being able to breathe appropriately, having pain. Um, and so ideally not wearing a binder with exercise as well. Um, and then uh, going through the different types of binders that they're using. Um, if they're using duct tape, recommending something besides duct tape, saran wrap. Um, we want to avoid those things that are really harsh and kind of way too much for the skin to, to be able to handle. Um, but like you said, spinal, uh, thoracic spine movements, chest opening, um, lateral breathing is really important. Um, and when we connect that to the pelvic floor, I haven't any, seen any specific research on this. Um, but when you look at decreased rib excursion, decreased rib mobility, that's going to limit the um, diaphragm and the diaphragm movement. We know that the diaphragm and pelvic floor move together. So if the diaphragm movement is limited, that can limit and impact the pelvic floor. Um, if you have a lot of compression through the trunk, there's a potential that can create more pressure downwards at the pelvic floor and create some pelvic floor issues. So again, there's not, not anything that I've seen robust in the literature, but if you think and you draw from other populations or if you just think, physiologically, um, then we can sometimes draw some of those, those correlations. Good stuff. The other question I had was, um, how do you see the future of pelvic health physical therapy, especially in regards to LGBTQIA plus support? I'll say one of the things I'm thinking about is there's, there's a steady increase in gender affirming surgeries. And I don't feel like there's 
much PT support out there for those people. And it's such an important part for um, the success of the surgeries um, can really rely on the aftercare and the maintenance, especially with like neo-vaginas. But um, yeah, there's just not enough resources for preparing and recovering from surgery and also just knowing, you know, uh, how it's going to change your lifestyle. Like, you know, um, dilating is a big commitment. And, uh, I think that because it's a lucrative business for a lot of the doctors, we need to, you know, be careful, like make sure that people really have the the truth and the information that they need. So that's one, one thing I'm thinking about with the future, but I'd like to know what, what your thoughts are. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree that. And, you know, it's, we have, we were talking earlier, there's the one, you know, comprehensive gender affirming course that's available um, compared to all of the other topics that are out there. You know, you can find 10 courses on stress incontinence for the female athlete. Um, so we should, in my mind, ideally be working towards having much more, many more courses and not you know, Sandy's course was phenomenal. I want more of that though. <laughs> yes. yes. You know, um, and a discussion group. Yeah. Um, right now I feel like a lot of us are on different Facebook groups with physios around the world that do transgender non-binary care, but, you know, having those more resources and, and just normalizing it more, you know, the pelvic health specialty started almost 50 years ago and it was primarily for OBGYN. And over the years, then it became more comprehensive of women's health across the lifespan. And then we're like, well, no, like we can see men too. Men also have pelvic floor. So then we started being inclusive of men and then children and then now transgender. And, and so, you know, it's, I don't think that we're still quite there yet in terms of, you know, right now, if you're a entry level, I'll say that in quotes, pelvic therapist, you you don't have that additional specialized training to work with these folks. And in my mind, like it shouldn't be that specialized that you have to get into this, you know? Yes. Is <laughs> um, in my mind. And then also, so I just gave a talk earlier this week, um, Dr. Meryl Alapato, she's a researcher and uh, professor at UF in Gainesville. And her and Dr. Mark Bishop, um, they're in the midst right now of actually um, writing and publishing a article that looks at um, basically the musculoskeletal implications um, and, and side effects that people are dealing with with their gender-affirming care, gender-affirming surgeries. And they also interview healthcare providers um, to see what their um, experiences have been as well. So I'm excited for that. But we gave a talk earlier this week to um, any therapist who is interested in coming. Um, and we, that to me is important because so many people think of, oh, gender affirming surgery or transgender care. Oh, that should immediately go to pelvic health. No, <laughs> when you think about a top surgery. So there's a lot of people in the oncology space who are able to utilize their skill set and knowledge for breast cancer survivors are having a mastectomy or a breast augmentation or tissue change, and they're able to utilize some of those same concepts for people having a top surgery. Um, for people who have a phalloplasty, there are some major skin grafts that can be utilized from the forearm and from the leg. Like acute care therapists need to know what that looks like um, and be able to address that in their mobility. They're on bed rest for up to a couple weeks they're going to lose muscle mass. They're going to lose bone density. This isn't just a pelvic health therapy population. This is an all therapy population. And I think if we can work towards that and expanding this type of care from just pelvic health, that's where I'd like to see that future go, honestly. That's a really good answer. Yeah. We're, we're, we're also doing a little exercise program for preparing for like um, breast enhancement surgeries. And then the other one, we thought of the other day um, was a high heel class, like preparing for transitioning into high heels, like to just all of a sudden start wearing heels. It's like, I mean, it's great for everyone. Like everything, you know, some of our education does overlap with sex workers who wear 
you know, when I was a dominatrix, I wore corsets a lot and heels. Sometimes I'd be in a corset and heels all day. So that gave me a little bit of a tactile experience for what chest binding might feel like. Um, <laughs> but also like, you know, for, we want, we want trans women to be able to wear heels and feel good and not get hurt. So like creating an exercise program for that, um, that's a little more, that's not so much a PT thing. Um, but, uh, I mean that you could get, a prob probably your doctor wouldn't write you a prescription for PT to get ready for heels. The frame is like postural training one of my dom friends i'm gonna do she's she's been around a long time and she's kind of segued more into doing education and um her name's tara indiana um she's doing more education and um she's just she's more into just like giving back to the community now rather than doing sex work she's kind of semi-retired and she has this great space but she, one of her classes is in for um for flogging, because I guess a lot of doms get carpal tunnel. So and she doesn't have a medical background, but from her experience, she's created this program. I'm like, let's merge. Because also, I think the rotator cuff can get uh, if you're doming for years and years. So I was like, oh, we need to do a biomechanics for dominatrix's class. Like, that would be so fun. Love that. She already has the outreach. So yeah. That is so <laughs> but cool. yeah, I like that you brought it out of the, it's not all just pelvic health. And then, you know, the other population, I would love to see, a, uh, I would love to see a pelvic health class that is for working with intersex people. Um, I, cause I do, I personally have questions about that. The, the hormone, hormonal issues are different and, um, people who, uh, you know, were subjected to surgical procedures at, at birth, like how that, how that might, what kind of scar tissue might be present from that, what that might look like, um, what that procedure is like and how it changes the anatomy. Like I have a lot of questions about that and I don't really know where to go for answers. I mean, besides doing lots of research, I guess, but then there, there's just not a lot of, when you look for the research, it's also not there sometimes, but Exactly. It's, yeah. Um, yeah. And where did, uh, where did you do most? I, I mean, the other thing I want to note, like, cause you were touching on this is like the, the specialization. It's like that costs money and time and like, you know, PT degrees are freaking expensive. And most people, when they're done, they're just like, yeah. and the, you know, the reimbursements from, you know, if you're working through insurance, the reimbursements aren't that great. So paying that, that off alone, like, a lot of people aren't really wanting to spend thousands of dollars getting these advanced certifications. Most people kind of do the minimum of what's required. And then that kind of leads to the situation where a lot of pelvic health PTs are cash-based because they're, they're having to spend so much and the liability increases. And um, so that's another problem I think about a lot. <laughs> but um, yeah, I yeah. did notice... Uh, or I, I actually MedBridge now has an inclusive course that you can do for your CEUs. So that, that was good. That's good. And then um, I can't remember who teaches it, but this was also through Pelvic Guru. I took this a couple years ago, but it's, um, I think it was like trans kink and um, something else. I can't remember what the name of the course was, but that was a really inclusive, really inclusive in terms of just inclusive, but also like all the topics of those areas. It was really great too. Um, but again, when you look at the cost of it, what your job is paying for in terms of your continuing education, the rationale for why you want to do it, like there's so many roadblocks to getting some of these additional certifications and training, like you mentioned. Yeah. And PTAs as employees, I found out after spending a lot I mean, I still would have spent the money, but like I couldn't even get a tax write-off for all the classes I took, like because employees don't get tax write-offs anymore. So not even my CPR training, which is required to maintain my license, no tax break. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely frustrating. That's um, one reasons with my courses. Um, I'm intentionally trying to price them fair. Um, 
because some of these courses you see in there, you know, just a couple hours long, couple CEs long, and it's like $800 for this course. And it's just, it's not accessible um, for, you know, all those reasons that we've just been talking about. So it's, you know, for me, something important when I'm building my courses beyond everything I mentioned earlier is making sure that it's, it's priced. I am, it's still a business, right? I still need to make money to be able to create more courses and edit everything and do all of these different things. But at the end of the day, like people need access to it. We're doing the work. <laughs> We're just going to serve all the world's problems today on this podcast. Let's do it. <laughs> so where can, um, where can people find you on Instagram and YouTube and your business? And um, do you do virtual consultations or just in person? All the things. So um, I work full time at a, at a hospital based clinic in, in Jacksonville, Florida. Um, my side business is Onco Pelvic PT. Um, I actually started it in 2020 because I was just frustrated with all of the things that were going on in 2020. And I wanted to put out something good with quality education that was inclusive for people. So that's actually how I, I started my, my company. Um, so everything is Onco Pelvic PT. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, um, YouTube, and then I have a website, OncoPelvicPT.com, and that has my blog, different resources, and including different products that I um, recommend for, you know, dilators or, you know, anything like that. So OncoPelvicPT. Awesome. And I'll put all that in the show notes, and I'm going to be looking into your classes too. So. Awesome. So thank you so much. And we're going to stay in touch, I'm sure. Yes, absolutely. And thank you so much for reaching out too. Have a good day. Thank you for listening. And now that you've made it through the episode, it's pretty clear to see that even though we live in the golden era of information, that allows non-binary and trans folks to access all kinds of health info, there are still tons of barriers that exist and impede access to patient education and comprehensive services for trans and NB folks. It's one of the major reasons I decided to start my nonprofit Pelvic Sanctuary and why I'm still looking to gather support from listeners like you. So if you'd like to learn more about Pelvic Sanctuary and how it is increasing access to person-centered care for LGBTQIA folks, head over to pelvicsanctuary.org. If you could also show your support through a tax-deductible gift, we would be over the moon. If you want to learn more about Dr. Alexandra Hill or any of the other resources mentioned here today, you can get those links in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and please subscribe.